0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: Cyclones hit Northern California. How far reaching will the impacts be?
2: It's far worse to the north, but we are seeing the impacts uh, from these storms, even in Southern California.
1: I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A pedestrian crossing on the west side reopens at the border. What it means for wait times and San Ysidro businesses.
3: Anything we can do to make the border crossing shorter for anyone uh, actually helps both sides.
1: And there are big plans to bring growth to Imperial Beach, plus a conversation with California's Poet Laureate. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: Forecasters with the National Weather Service are calling it a relentless parade of cyclones as more severe weather threatens northern and central California. Right now, a state of emergency has been declared across the state in preparation for what's to come. Here in Southern California, an atmospheric river with high winds will dump another 1.5 inches of rain over the next two days. What exactly does that mean and what will the impacts be? I'm joined now by Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in San Diego. Alex, welcome back to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on again. So
1: tell us about the storm that's taking shape later today. Where is it centered and how much will San Diego be impacted?
2: Yeah, so right now the uh, storm system is moving into central and northern California. In fact, uh, they've seen a lot of rain again over the past weekend from two storms or two atmospheric rivers. That's going to slide down into southern California this evening, tonight, Monday night and we'll see the brunt of the rain on Tuesday. For planning purposes, that's when you'll have periods of rain which will be heavy at times in San Diego on Tuesday. So this is just a series of atmospheric rivers that have started since late December, in fact December 28th, and of course New Year's, and then last week, and now here we are again, start of this week, another storm system pressing into Southern California
1: does this all this rain put us in danger of you know toppled trees, power lines? What type of damage could we expect to see?
2: Yeah, so the impacts from this series of storms um, are accumulative. So what that means is the ground is becoming saturated, so the rain goes a little bit further. you have more response, more flooding type of uh, scenario with this type of series of storms where there's not much of a break in between. Now we don't expect the massive surf like we saw last week. The hit mission beach uh, but we do expect high winds 30 40 miles per hour uh the saturated ground trees can come down a little bit easier like i said the rainfall will respond quicker so we'll see a quick response on the san diego river for example could get up close to uh 10 feet if that one inch to one and a half inch of rain does materialize on tuesday It's far worse to the north, but we are seeing the impacts uh, from these storms, even in Southern California.
1: So far, it seems like parts of the northern part of California, as you mentioned, they've really seen the brunt of these storms. Is that the case with this latest storm?
2: That's the case with this latest storm. But if we look further out uh, late this week, specifically next weekend, this upcoming weekend, uh, it's going to shift more into Southern California focused from the next series of atmospheric rivers. But yeah, Central California, so the snowpack is two times higher than it should be this time of the year. They've received so much rain that the reservoirs, even the large ones, are almost half full. Um, and we're talking about an area that was stricken by drought over the past three years.
1: And as we mentioned, a state of emergency has been declared for the state. What does that mean in practical terms? I mean, does that allow for more emergency responders to be available?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, It allows the process and administrative process, especially, to move forward quicker, faster, and more efficiently. With the flooding that we've already seen, like in San Francisco, uh, with the levee break that we saw southeast of Sacramento, on the Cosumnes River, when you already have those impacts and those damages and you anticipate more rain, it's only intuitive that you're proactive because uh, additional rain on saturated ground, even though we may not know exactly where the problems will be, it's likely to have additional problems from the repeated rain and wind.
1: And how long is this storm going to stay with us? Will we likely return to blue skies for the rest of the week?
2: Yeah, I think midweek is going to be nice, just like the weekend we had. So a few showers on Wednesday could linger around in the morning. But overall, Wednesday, Thursday, get a little bit of blue sky. And then we'll have to deal with the clouds returning late in the week on Friday. And the really good chance for rain next weekend, which could be prolonged rain, not necessarily severe or heavy, but prolonged rain over the weekend for Southern California.
1: You mentioned earlier how high the snowpack levels have gotten this year. Will we see those numbers go up more this week as well?
2: Yes, for sure. Um, even though these have been atmospheric rivers and have been mild, they've been the moisture has been coming out from Hawaii, which is the so-called Pineapple Express. The latter half of the storms have been enough, even in Southern California, to bring a few inches of snow, But in the Sierra Nevada, it's been feet of snow. So we are at a pace that exceeds the snowiest year on record, which was 82-83. So we do need this to continue into February to really secure an opportunity to remove the drought. But because we have so much snowpack already in place and so much rain has already fallen and we're seeing the response in the California reservoirs, we're already making major improvements on the drought conditions.
1: That's great to hear. You know, we've also heard a lot about atmospheric rivers in the last week or two. Can you explain what exactly those are?
2: Yeah, so an atmospheric river is moisture that comes up from the tropics. Uh, It doesn't have to be Hawaii. In this case, it's been extending all across the Western Pacific uh, to the west side, almost near Asia. But the bottom line is you need that tropical moisture. And then you need wind speed, which is your Pacific storm or the jet stream. You need the wind to pick up that moisture and drive it east into California. Uh, and what that does is it brings us rain even on the coast, but it also brings us rain into the mountains. So that rain gets enhanced or magnified in the mountains. We call that upslope flow, but the key ingredients are the wind and the tropical moisture. And then you have to get that hose or that plume of moisture to be pointed right at your area. And that's really what's been happening repeatedly for central California.
1: Any advice for San Diegans heading toward a wet Tuesday?
2: Yeah. So plan accordingly for your commute. Uh, The commute will be a problem with the rain, the wet road, the ponding of water. If you do live in a flood-prone area anywhere, even in Southern California, today before the rain comes in, make sure your gutters are cleaned out. Make sure the water from the last storm drained correctly. Um, Your pool, for example, could be full. There are little things you can do in and around your house, but overall, be prepared for wet conditions.
1: I've been speaking with Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in San Diego. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The busiest border crossing in the Western Hemisphere could soon be a little easier to pass through, provided you are traveling on foot. The Penn West pedestrian crossing at the San Ysidro port of entry will reopen today after nearly three years of pandemic-related closure. The reopened crossing could help shorten passage through the border for travelers at a time where exceedingly long wait times have become the norm. Joining me now with the latest is KPBS North County multimedia producer, Alex Nguyen. Alex, welcome.
4: Hey, thanks, Jay, for having me.
1: So can you start off by reminding us why PED West has been closed all this time in the first place?
4: Well, when the pandemic first happened, um, as you know, everything closed, including the border. And at that time, uh, you know, they're using the pandemic restriction as a reason to close Pet West. And since then, uh, the Border Patrol, or CBP, has opened Pet East, but Pet West remained closed, as you say, for almost three years.
1: And what function does it serve exactly?
4: Uh, it's a pedestrian crossing, so it takes a lot of foot traffic off of Pet East. It's a pedestrian crossing, and people can go directly from Mexico into the Las Americas malls. And Pet East, there's about 20,000 pedestrian crossing a day, so that's going to you know offset a lot of that and uh, shorten a lot of the wait time for people crossing into the U.S.
1: You know, before its closure, PED West was uh, operated 24 hours a day. That won't be the case for now. Why is that?
4: Well, the uh, CPP won't outright say, but it is a staffing issue. Uh, What they told me was that they are going to continually assess The staffing needs and as well as the uh, pedestrian volume at Pet West and that will determine the uh, staffing schedule or the opening hours. But reading between the lines, it's really about a staffing issue.
1: Well, and it is a staffing uh, issue there. And there's also been a lot of discussion over CPB's ability to staff its border crossings. Uh, That in mind, will Pet West actually be able to have enough staffing to alleviate the foot traffic coming through Pet East?
4: Well, as you can see, uh, they're opening it for very limited hours from, I believe, 6 to 2 p.m. And I think this is just a trial period just to see if they actually can have that staffing available. Uh, and Pet West used to be open 24 hours, and now it's only open eight hours. So you can see how much the staffing shortage is for CBP.
1: All right. So what should people know about using Pet West ahead of time?
4: Simply the same thing that you need to know to cross into Mexico, just make sure you have your papers ready and also to make sure that to check on the State Department's current guidelines and also just check the CPP website to see what the crossing time is. And right now I'm looking at it uh, this morning that we're speaking, it's about five minutes uh, for Pet West.
1: That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I've been speaking with KPBS North County multimedia reporter Alex Wynn. Alex, thanks for talking with us today.
4: Thanks, Jade. It was a pleasure.
1: As we mentioned, border officials anticipate that PedWest reopening will ease congestion at the San Ysidro Port of Entry. Business leaders, on the other hand, are hoping the increased foot traffic will provide a much needed boost for local commerce. My next guest is Jason Wells, chief executive of the San Ysidro Chamber of Commerce. He joins us now with the business outlook on the reopened PedWest West crossing. Jason, welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon to you too. What kind of impact do you think the reopened Pedwest Crossing is going to have on local businesses?
3: Well, there isn't a thing. There, There will be a positive impact. You know, 95% of our customers on, on the east side come from Mexico. 65% of our customers come from Mexico on the west side. So anything we can do to make the border crossing shorter for anyone uh, actually helps both sides. So this reopening is going to bring more people uh, directly to the outlets. It's going to bring employees to work on time. It's going to be getting family members to be able to visit each other a lot more easy, a lot easier. And again, it doesn't just help the west side because everybody that we put on the west side, they were going there anyway. So it just takes them out of the line. On the east side, making that border crossing shorter.
1: It's also important to note that PED West is not going to immediately return to its 24-hour pre-pandemic operations. Are you worried at all about this reduced capacity?
3: We'll take a step by step, you know, reopening. Um, What's happened is that, you know, to open PED West per se, it's not just sending two agents to open two lanes. It's sending two agents to open two lanes. It's sending the supervisor to watch those agents. It's sending somebody that works with cash to be able to take the the uh, permits and so forth. Not that I'm giving excuses for CVP, but we do understand that from three years of closing to opening, uh, and there's been no change in personnel for them. um we're 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 happy that the commitment to reopen has been upheld to a point and that they've used the personnel that they have in, in creating at least one uh, uh, shift uh, that's reopened. So yes, the reopening is six am to 2 pm right now, uh, northbound traffic only.
1: Despite the good news of this reopening, there have been lingering concerns about Customs and Border Protection's ability to really adequately staff its border crossings. Do you share these concerns? And and what were the what was staffing like before the pandemic?
3: I don't allow staffing to be an excuse, an accepted excuse, meaning I have businesses that because the border crossing is late, their employees don't get to work on time or don't get there at all for their ship. So CBP needs to be able to operate just like my businesses do based on border flow. We, you know, I was I've been part of the planning for the port of entry and its reconfiguration for the last uh, better of a part of the last 20 years. There had always been anticipated personnel for the anticipated border crossings those border crossings are no longer anticipated neither is that personnel number yes they've had some uh you know retirements and everything but that we all do um so to me it's more of a management issue not necessarily a personnel issue that's not to say we wouldn't support uh more personnel for them but it's also to say that we don't use we don't accept personnel as an excuse to not do their jobs
1: And what are you hearing directly from business owners about this news? Are people hopeful about what this could mean for small business in San Ysidro?
3: Well, you know, I wouldn't even say hopeful, I'd say relieved. I mean, we fought for to get Pedrest created. The fact that we haven't had it open for three years, uh, you know, has been terrible for us. San Isidro is so ignored with a lot of infrastructure that we really need to have the infrastructure we, we do have open. Um, so, no, it, like I said, this doesn't just ease sale. This isn't just a dollar thing. This is. These are employees getting to work. These are people getting to school. These are family members, uh, you know, visiting each other. These are people getting medical. Care. Uh, we are a binational region, and every every day of our lives is affected somehow with the other side of the border, whether you're north or south of it.
1: And what's the general outlook for small businesses in San Ysidro right now? Are are a lot of business owners struggling?
3: Uh, absolutely. Um, this year was not a a rebound year from pre pandemic, um, and uh, in large part due to uh, border crossing times. Um, so what we're we're hoping for is really looking forward, um, uh, we know this has to benefit us. We know things have to increase. It's just to which level is is the uncertainty. Um, so you know, we as a chamber, uh, obviously pushing every day to get our facilities open and used and fully manned and getting more uh, more uh, uh, staff time there um getting both sides crossing uh also working with our local and, and federal governments to get more infrastructure here we're you know doing our part we also have uh, access uh, to uh capital for our businesses um and then you know they'll do their their part and having their doors open so uh this this is all a system um this is all a, a huge machine um and you know border crossings are a part of that so now that we're able to Uh, Create more efficient crossings, businesses only got to get better.
1: It's been a struggle, but how have small businesses been able to cope over the past few years?
3: A lot of reduction in staffing. Um, We literally have gotten down to mom and pop and a kid, (laughs) you know, on most of the boulevard. Um, As I said, as a a chamber, I brought on an additional staff member um, with a a partnership that we have with civic communities just to be a a go-between between our businesses and access to capital um, to help keep them either growing or going or open. So, you know, again, we're, we're one big family down here doing everything we can. We've gotten by this last year. We certainly haven't gotten, haven't rebounded, but we're hoping that 2023 can do that for us.
1: Have you seen a lot of businesses close as a result of just not seeing enough
3: customers? Yeah, uh, You know, the major closings happened during the pandemic, uh, but what we've seen in the years since everything except Pedwest West has been open uh, is just not a lot of growth. Um, we've, we've stopped the hemorrhaging as far as doors closing, uh, but there just hadn't been a lot of growth. And again, a lot of that had to do with border crossing times and people not coming back in the, in the numbers that they were pre-pandemic. And we're really counting on this reopening of PED West and everything we're doing here as a chamber to make 2023 the year that we do actually see that rebound.
1: And at this point in time, I mean, we know that there were issues during the pandemic. Are many of the small businesses still seeing the same issues of staffing shortages and um, fewer customers?
3: no, absolutely again, uh, border times have kept border wait times have kept the, our number of shoppers and visitors at a pandemic level, not going back to a pre-pandemic level, which is why today was so important in reopening uh, PedWest. Um So, uh, you know, things have not gotten worse since the pandemic, but they hadn't gotten better either. We're hoping that this is the first step to uh, getting things better for 2023.
1: And so then what do you think would be needed to bring business back to pre-pandemic levels?
3: Well, for, first, certainly wait times have to be uh, acceptable. Um, so we're talking, you know, anything less than half an hour for pedestrians. Um, anything more than that, it is inexcusable. Uh, in addition to that, um, again, wait times will allow people to flow. But what we need for people to actually be able to visit San Isidro is a lot of infrastructure needs. Right now. Uh, we have the capacity for thirty thousand people a day to cross our border, uh, our borders, uh, and in the pedestrian crossings. Yet, two people can't walk shoulder to shoulder to my office, which is a block and a half away. So, there's a lot of infrastructure needs. We've been working with our local, uh, both city and, and and county governments on. Um, Sandag has a Bay of Bikeway link that's supposed to be. Uh, Putting shovels in the ground this year, we need that to happen. Um, and you know, in 2024, uh, we're going to have the eyes of the world on us um, as the World Design Capital designation. Um, yet, when you cross the border today. As soon as you cross, it doesn't look a lot more different than than Tijuana. So there's a lot of infrastructure needs and we're counting a lot on, you know, all these, uh, you know, all of our elected officials that are popping up their collars for this world designation, uh, uh, world design, excuse me, designation. Uh, We we need them to, you know, put in some more resources for us at the ground level in these in the community where these two uh, great uh, pieces of our region link.
1: I've been speaking with Jason Wells, chief executive of the San Ysidro Chamber of Commerce. Jason, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you. I appreciate the time.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Honda,
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Imperial Beach has long had a reputation as a scruffy beach town, but it's been gentrifying in recent years. Now city officials unveiled a new plan to make it a destination city. KPBS reporter Gustavo Solis has the story. If
5: you haven't visited Imperial Beach in a while, you may not recognize it. The town's gritty surfer vibe is still there. But now there's a fancy hotel right on the beach – and a bunch of new shops, restaurants, and breweries. While IB's gentrification came later than most places in San Diego County, it didn't come out of nowhere. It actually started back in the year 2000 with a planning document that was simply called the Big Picture. Newly elected mayor Paloma Aguirre says that the Big Picture changed Seacoast Drive, which is the city's beachfront commercial corridor. We talked on the IB Pier last week as the winter storms were coming in. Overall, we've made tremendous progress, especially in the last eight years. Uh, We've brought a lot of new businesses to IBE, especially in our seacoast area, on
3: our Palm Avenue corridor.
5: Now, there's a new version of the big picture for the coming decade. Officials are calling it the bigger picture. City manager Andy Hall came up with the name. You know, everybody talked about the big picture, the big picture, and it was a great, great document for providing vision and whatnot, so we thought... Let's not mess
3: with it, let's call it the bigger picture. I know just chapter two.
5: This time, the vision goes beyond Seacoast Drive. It includes new public services, an updated pier, and new pedestrian-friendly shopping corridors in the east part of town.
2: The bigger picture really had a lot to do with um, having the nature of Imperial Beach change from trying to be just a bedroom community to being something more.
5: Mayor Aguirre is especially proud of the fact that the new plan includes 13th Street and the eastern part of Palm Avenue. Both areas have historically been neglected.
6: Districts 1 and Districts 4, which are the um,
5: northern and eastern, the outskirts of our city, if you will, haven't had the same amount of investment as um, other areas like where we are today, right, and and Seacoast have had in the past. Individual parts of the plan will be funded by a voter-approved sales tax, hotel taxes, the general fund, and other fees. It also includes infrastructure improvements that the entire region will benefit from. Part of that will be at the Bayshore Bikeway, a bike path that includes the Silver Strand Beach just north of I B and wraps around the entire San Diego Bay. It will eventually connect to the border. Hall says that the people and vehicles who use the bikeway have changed over the last 20 years, so the city needs to change with them. We didn't have electric bikes going 25 miles an hour when, when the bike path first put in. Um, We didn't have as many pedestrians walking on the bike path. Now there's a lot of bicycle-pedestrian conflict. So we need to have things like hydration stations and lights. Some of the initiatives of the bigger picture are already in the works. The city brought back its Parks and Recreation Department and a facelift to I.B. Pier is already underway.
4: People propose to each other here. We see it, we we witness it. And so absolutely,
5: I think it's definitely gonna generate a lot more revenue for for Imperial Beach. That's Jen Crowley. I spoke with her inside the Cowabunga Ice Cream Shop that's been at the pier for 20 years.
6: In the 90s, it wasn't the best place to be. And so
7: I used to come here and it was kind of... Ivy had a bad name at the time, unfortunately. And so there's been a lot of cleaning up.
5: Crowley says she's excited to see how the bigger picture plays out and changes Imperial Beach over the next decade.
1: That story from KPBS reporter Gustavo Solis, and he joins me now to open his reporter's notebook. Gustavo, welcome. Hello, Jade. So, you know, these are ambitious goals. What's been the biggest impediment to growth in Imperial Beach?
5: Well, I think historically Imperial Beach has has lagged behind some of the other coastal communities for, for a couple of reasons. One, they don't have a, a particularly big tax base uh, from, from business sales and hotel taxes, but also the biggest one, I think, in terms of hurting the reputation of IB, the, the perception of IB, even property values of IB, is the cross-border sewage issue that just continually keeps its beaches closed.
1: Mm. And, and paint the picture for us on how sewage overflows from Tijuana impact Imperial Beach's ability to grow.
5: Well, I, I live in Imperial Beach, and I, I like to sleep with the, with the window open sometimes. And I'll wake up and I'll, I'll smell the faint odor of of sewer sometimes in the morning. So it's kind of like that on on the daily, on on really bad days. I mean, I've thought about moving out just because of that, right? What's the point of living so close to the beach if you can't actually go in the water half the time? In terms of an actual impact people can see, I mean, just look at property values, right? Imperial Beach is in Southern California. It is on the beach. It has houses for sale that are one or two blocks away from the beach, that are being sold for less than a $1 million. Uh, if you go a couple miles north to, San- to Coronado, those houses are being sold for more than $5 million. So that kind of starts telling you the impact of, of the cross-border sewage issue.
1: Mm. And the bigger picture, you say, has already begun, bringing back the parks and rec department, which had been gone for 20 years. What's the impact of bringing that back?
5: Yeah, that, that's a huge deal. That's actually something that, that mayor, newly elected Mayor Paloma Aguirre is, is particularly excited about. It's something that the former mayor, Serge Medina uh, called for many, many times before he left office. And Imperial Beach, they had, I think, the only kind of public-serving youth event organization they had before was Junior Lifeguards, which is very popular over here. But now they'll be able to have a more diversity in programming for children, for seniors, for families. Uh, so that's just kind of creating the sense of, or not even creating, because there is a strong sense of community here, but but maintaining that and strengthening that uh, and preserving that. I think it'll go a long way to make the city and, and municipal government a visible presence in, in people's lives.
1: And while most of the attention has been paid to the beach area, now the city is working on the east side. Uh, talk a bit more about the changes in store. Yeah, yeah.
5: As as you said, most of the attention has gone to Seacoast Drive, uh, the the Bayfront uh, Waterfront Commercial Corridor. Um, And you can see kind of the fruits of those investments starting to bear out now with with the hotel they have, restaurants and breweries they have on there, which is great for, for people who live and work and and spend time in Seacoast Drive. But for the people on the eastern side of town, around 13th Street, on the eastern side of Palm Avenue, they haven't seen those same investments. And they've been calling the city out for a while now, and the city is, is listening to them. Part of the bigger picture does call for changing the way The 13th Street corridor looks and the eastern part of Palm Avenue looks. They want to widen the sidewalks, uh, bring in more lighting, pedestrian-friendly crosswalks, more trees, and make that area a place like right now it's just mostly a place that you drive through on your way to the beach. They want it to be a place that you can drive to and have it be a destination in and of itself. Um, and with that, obviously, comes hopefully it attracting new businesses and mixed-use development like you have on Seacoast Drive, and that would expand, obviously, the the business tax base, the, the sales tax base, sorry.
1: Yeah, you know, another big change is an expansion of the Bayshore Bikeway, eventually all the way to the border. This seems like a big deal. What's the vision there?
5: Yeah, well, that's been in the works before the bigger picture. I mean, the bigger picture incorporates it, but but it has been years long in in the making. That one, I think Sandag is also involved in that project. So it's the the bigger picture in terms of the Bayshore Bikeway is twofold. One, obviously, it is continuing to expand it into the border, which would be a huge boost to the entire region. Hopefully, I don't know how. This would actually play out in person, but but the idea or, or the, the goal that the officials have would be that people would be able to just, instead of commute to work by car or trolley, they would be able to take their bikes to and from Tijuana, which might alleviate some of that cross-border traffic, particularly on the weekends. And then in terms of the actual Bayshore bikeway, they want to make it a little bit more uh, safer for the people who are riding it right now. First, it starts with recognizing that the use have changed over the the last 20 years. Uh, It's not just bicycles anymore, and it's not just road bikes anymore. Now you have uh, a lot more pedestrians than you ever did, and you have electric bicycles that can go 20 miles per hour. The city manager, when I talked to him, Andy Hall, he mentioned there has been some pedestrian versus bicyclist tension growing in the Bayshore bikeway. So part of making it safer is updated signage, widening it a little bit, creating some benches and rest areas for pedestrians and increased lighting. So just kind of a plan to expand it and make it clear who can go where so that everybody can share the road uh, in a little bit of a nicer way.
1: You talked about the new mayor in your story. Do you have a sense of how her leadership may impact these endeavors? So
5: her, it, it's it's a little bit interesting. I don't, it's hard for me to say just because of local politics in Imperial Beach. I mean, Paloma Aguirre came in a couple of years ago, served on the city council. She was kind of initially seen as uh, Serge de Dina's uh, protege. They both came from Wild Coast, so she does have the, the bona fides of being involved in uh, environmental activism for many, many years. She's been a strong and uh, fighter and leader in the cross-border sewage issue, and she will continue to be that. She does have some detractors in the city council. It was shown just a couple of months ago how the the, the vote to elect a SANDAG representative Mayor Paloma Aguirre wasn't elected. It was a city council member that went in. So there's some conflict. And I don't know how that will play out in the long term in terms of the city's ability to get things done. Obviously, it's a little bit harder to get things done if there's a little bit of tension on the council or not. But I would say that her priorities are the same that they've been for, for a while now, which is uh, addressing the cross-border sewage issue, increasing municipal services without alienating people who have lived here for for a long time, which is kind of the the struggle of gentrification, right? How do you expand and increase without pricing people out or or losing that community that the city has cultivated for generations?
1: Right. And, you know, I mean, Imperial Beach is a vibe. There's this culture that exists there. Uh, On the weekends, you can see lowrider cars cruising along Seacoast Drive. How do you think these big picture ideas will change all of that? And is everyone on board with it?
5: I think that though the big picture ideas are meant to just keep the city, it's it's the future to keep the city running. I mean, Imperial Beach has one of the lowest tax uh, revenues in San Diego County. It's a very small city. I think it's like two or three square miles. And these projects are meant to make the city more resilient to, to economic downturns. They're, they're aiming to, to increase some of the public amenities. So the city officials kind of see it as central to to keeping Imperial Beach the way it is. And not that it's in any danger, but they don't want it to become a, a, like a lemon grove that's kind of struggling to, to stay afloat. And in terms of people against it, I mean, the big picture is made up of a bunch of little projects, right? And if you read the document, it's, the projects are set up in an individual basis. They all have their own intended funding source their own timeline. So I think there might be some detractors in terms of individual projects that they may not like or may be politically shaky, but I think for the most part there's there's wide-ranging support for the idea of having this long-term vision uh, of progress in the city.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thanks.
5: Oh, thank you, Jade.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Poet Lee Herrick has taught at Fresno City College since the late 1990s and is now our state's first Asian American Poet Laureate. His work has touched on some of the experiences Californians share, including our diverse culture and food, as well as questions of identity.
7: I washed my daughter bite into a peach. And although she did not have the language for it yet, I imagined her thinking, that taste, that perfect juice, is heavenly. There was a certain light in Fresno that day. Like today, Where we work and dream.
1: The California Report magazine host Sasha Koka chats with Herrick as he shares some poems and his plans to spread his love of poetry across the
6: state. Lee, you were raised in the Bay Area, Danville, and Modesto for a bit. You now live in Fresno. You also write about L.A. and other parts of the state. You just capture the flavor and texture of California so well. I want to ask you to read one of my favorite poems, which is called, My California.
7: Yes, I'd be happy to. My California. Here, an olive votive keeps the sunset lit. The Korean 20-somethings talk about hyphens, graduate school, and good pot. A group of four at a window table in Carpinteria discuss the quality of wines in Napa Valley versus Lodi. Here in my California, the streets remember the Chicano poet whose songs still bank off Fresno's beer-soaked gutters and almond trees in partial blossom. Here in my California, We fish out long noodles from the pho with such accuracy, you'd know we'd done this before. In Fresno, the bullets tire of themselves and begin to pray five times a day. In Fresno, we hope for less of the police state and more of a state of grace. In my California, you can watch the sun go down like in your California on the ledge of the pregnant 22nd century, the one with a bounty of peaches and grapes, red onions and the good salsa, wine and japchae. Here in my California, paperbacks are free. Farmer's markets are 24 hours a day and always packed. The trees and water have no nails in them. The priests eat well, the homeless eat well. Here in my California, everywhere is Chinatown, everywhere is K Town, everywhere is Armenia Town, everywhere a little Italy. Less Confederacy, no internment in the valley, better history texts for the juniors in my California, free sounds and free touch, free questions, free answers, free songs from parents and poets, those hopeful bodies of light.
6: Lee, you come from a long line of Fresno poets who've been recognized at both the state and the national level. In fact, two of our most recent National Poet Laureates are from Fresno, Philip Levine and Juan Felipe Herrera. What is it about Fresno, you think, that inspires writers?
7: I do think it has some combination to do with a few things. One is just the heat and the grit of the city. There's a great work ethic that stems from that which lends itself well to writing poetry. I think the poets here are unafraid of work, just like the people are unafraid of work and sweat and the heat. Uh, I believe there are something like over 90 languages spoken here. Um, Incredibly diverse. One of the most vibrant, rich poetry communities anywhere.
6: I know you've done a lot of thinking about race and identity, and one of the themes in your work is what it's like to be a Korean adoptee who grew up in a white family. Tell me a little bit about how your adoptive family talked to you about race.
7: You know, so I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, and the adoption discourse at that time sort of mirrored the race discourse of that time from white America, or from my white family, which was we don't see color, we're, we're all the same. It can also have an isolating effect on a person of color in a white family. I'm still very close with my parents, and luckily they were able to learn with me as I learned and be receptive to things that I would tell them about experiences with racism that were extremely difficult, a a defining moment in my life with regard to race consciousness was the Rodney King beating in 1992, and some of the impact that had on the Korean American community. And so it took me a while to realize that I was Asian American. Uh, It took me a while to realize that the racism I was experienced was not accidental and that it was having an impact on me and on um, thousands or millions of other people.
6: Well, there's also a lot of delight and celebration in your poetry. One of the things I find most joyful about your work is when you write about food.
7: Oh, Sasha, we could talk a long time about food, couldn't we? <laughs> in this, this, this state is... Um, such an incredible bounty. So, this is a poem titled Abicidarian Love Song for Street Food. All praise for the pozole glistening in midday light by the grace of the woman near the comal. In Southern California, Raul Martinez Unveiled a mobile downtown gold mine of Al Pastor by a bar in East LA for the drunk, the artists, the necessary future waiting in line. Praise be to the ice cream truck, glory of the van's slow roll. So praise the van, hut, cart, booth, tent, stall, Stand, bike, or truck. I once devoured a Tlayuda in Oaxaca City, broke down just as the sunlight burst through the heart of a woman kissing her baby's forehead by the plaza. When I say love, what I mean to say is I dream of you through disaster, malady, drought, or this nightmare anxiety pandemic. Now, even in this late dying, let us praise the 20,000 open-hearted vendors in Bangkok and the glorious pupusas in San Salvador I ate on a bench near a dove. Quesadilla, arepa, dupoqui, hallelujah. The Bon mi right on the outskirts of Hue. The chili pepper, the cilantro songs, praise the Zocalo saints who brought me to tears with a taco so full of music, I almost wept. Under the Beijing moonlight, Baozi is made by angels, vendors with wings if you know where to look. On West 53rd and 6th Avenue, New York City, halal, or in Fresno. No xenophobe is welcome. Tell me what to eat. Your chuan, your elote, your mouth full of pure zen, like savory, surprising flashes of heaven.
6: Mm, you are making me hungry. Tacos full of music, what an <laughs> image.
7: Oh. God bless the tacos. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
6: Fresno has some of the best tacos, too. You're lucky. Lee, tell us a little bit about your goals as Poet Laureate. How do you think you're going to try to bring poetry into the lives of more Californians?
7: The idea is two-pronged, and my platform I'm calling Our California. Every reading and event that I do throughout the state, I hope to pair with a local social justice or civic engagement organization. I've already got readings, books from San Diego to Northern California and, and everywhere in between. The other way, I'll be inviting any and every Californian to write a poem about their city, their town, or their California, if you will. What do they love about it? What beauty do they see in it? But also, what don't they love about it?
1: That was California Poet Laureate Lee Herrick speaking with the California Report magazine host Sasha Koka. He's the author of several books, including Scar and Flower and Gardening Secrets of the Dead. He also co-edited The World I Leave You, Asian American Poets on Faith and Spirit.